Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Gosh, thanks. It's great to see you all. Welcome to a brand new year. I hope we'll have a really good time this year. I'm looking forward to all of the talks myself, and not just because I like to talk, um, but because the topics are really interesting. I think that I got really lucky today when I was asked to talk about lyric impulses in La Boheme. And what I wanna do with my time is I wanna break it into two parts. Uh, I want to talk about some cultural issues surrounding the notion of lyricism by about 1896 when the opera premiered. And I then want to spend uh, the rest of my time talking specifically musically about what exactly that might mean in the case of Puccini. So let me start by talking about thematics. And the best way to do it is to think for a little while about the title of the opera, La Boheme. Of course, it's a derivation of the, it's not really a novel, even though people call it a novel, the uh, sort of varied collection of stories that were published by Henri Murger called Scène de la Vie Boheme, uh, scenes from the Bohemian life, uh, that was published in 1851. It was a collection first of short stories loosely held together by recurring characters and themes and scenes and things like that. In a way, if you want to think in terms of 19th century French literature, it's not that different from a sort of small scale version of Balzac of La Comédie Humaine, which of course is a sprawling collection of novels with characters who keep turning up in each other's stories. Um, that's a lot of what this is like, which is why it makes so much sense uh, when you look at Puccini's adaptation um, through his librettists to combine characters, to mix scenes, and to sort of, sort of derive a kind of plot out of this sort of loose farrago of things. But what was, the, what was Muget doing? Well, he was talking about a kind of society that had been reconceptualized in the early 19th century because of various political shifts that were ongoing after the fall of Napoleon. The most important of them for French society was the ascendancy, and it, this was true in Europe generally, of the middle classes. And the middle classes with a specific kind of moral and stylistic configuration. Uh, when we think of a good bourgeois person in about 1850 or so, we're probably thinking of someone who places an enormous amount of emphasis on notions of respectability and rectitude. Uh, very famously, by the end of the century, people like Matthew Arnold will be dismissing the middle classes as sort of like the, these terrible people who are too self-conscious and not authentic and all stuffy and hidebound, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That critique was ongoing already from the French Revolution. Um, at first, from the aristocrats, who of course were finding themselves displaced and their values being completely um, dismissed as just not worthy. Um, for instance, one great uh, aristocratic virtue is largesse. You're not supposed to care about saving money. You're not supposed to be sitting around plowing all of your profits back into your capitalist enterprise. You're supposed to spend. If you're a proper aristocrat, you're probably in debt. 
There was rarely a, a monarch in the Middle Ages who didn't die heavily indebted after all. And so this kind of free spending, generous lifestyle, this kind of magnificence was a major aristocratic value that suddenly had no place in a world where what you're interested in is growing your inheritance and your sort of property and then passing it on through an arranged marriage, right? What is an arranged marriage if not a property arrangement? That's what they're all about. Love, who cares? Um, a, a marriage, a true marriage, a traditional marriage is two groups of property coming together to pass on more property. Um, my own maternal grandmother, I think I've mentioned before, was not sent to college. She was this young lady of, of, of fine family from Birmingham, Alabama. And so she was sent to finishing school. She was sent to finishing school to study piano and elocution because that was what was going to be necessary for her to make a good match. And that whole world of those familial arrangements, of that kind of domestic quality, of having your daughters play the piano and the violin because you have to have piano girls to play for entertainment when you're hosting your friends, that whole world of stuffy uprightness was also strongly tied, especially by 1850, to notions of utilitarianism. If it's not useful and profitable, then why do we need it? Very famously, the radical Russian critic Pisaryev, I believe it was, at one point in the 1860s, uh, bluntly said this very famous maxim in Russian, boots are better than Shakespeare. Now, against that, of course, you're going to have a really strong reaction. Nowadays, we're inclined to sort of poo-poo the notion of art for art's sake as a bunch of delicate, fragile flower poetasters just sitting around having fine feelings. But originally, it's a political point. It's saying art is not about what you need right now. Art has other purposes that can't be reduced to your accounting ledgers. Art is not actually something that can simply be summarized on a balance sheet. That's the point of it. And that tells you something important about the other side of the reaction to the, sort of this particular kind of bourgeois society. The aristocrats were envious and displaced. By the end of the, of the 19th century in France, they were going to try to make a play for power, cultural power again, by sponsoring avant-garde art. So, you know, whenever you're thinking of someone like Stravinsky or Ravel and, all, uh, and all, the, all these composers that we so admire, remember that a lot of the circles they are inhabiting are right-wing, revanchist, aristocratic uh, groups of people who really wish the French Revolution had never happened. But the other side of this, were the other people who were repelled by this respectability were large numbers of artists for whom there seemed to be no place. It's especially with Charles Baudelaire, the great French poet, that we start to conceive of this particular artistic world in combative terms. The term avant-garde, after all, is originally a military term. It refers to the troops that are leading the entire army and scouting out the, sort of the territory and getting things ready. And to conceptualize art as a battle specifically against a class of people is really crucial. 
the old term impeter les bourgeoisie, which I think is best translated, frankly, as pissing off the middle classes, is really then an artistic value. Um, uh, T.S. Eliot very famously said of Baudelaire, in fact, that he was the only poet he could think of in that generation who was man enough to be damned, because Baudelaire liked to insist on the necessity of this sense of guilt and sin and these sort of dark, dramatic emotions in a world that was really seeming to him to be more interested in, well, you know, um, let's sort of make sure that our trains run on time and let's make sure that our, our outfits are come in faux and let's make sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. Now, despite this attitude of hostility, of course, it was a parasitic relationship. It's just like when you think about masters, you have to have a slave to have a master. You have to have one and the other. They don't exist apart from each other. The bourgeoisie and this avant-garde had to have each other to define themselves. And so the, the, the bohemian life, as unrespectable, as wild as it was, and as wild as it kept getting, continued to fascinate the middle classes. That's what they wanted to see. In a way, it's a slightly less icky version of the National Enquirer, right? The whole purpose of a tabloid is to let us all gawk at these other people and their outlandish escapades and, well, I never, let me read some more. Um, and that's actually a function that, the, that this world often performed. Hence, we deal with the question of bohemia. Now, the term itself originates as an ethnic slur. It actually refers to the Romani people, who, of course, we would have called gypsies back in the day. And in France, when Romani folks first showed up more visibly in the 19th century, they didn't really, the French didn't understand where they were from. So they said, well, they're wild and savage and untamed. They must be from Bohemia because it's just some place over there. And they speak German and, you know, remember, until the late 19th century, Germany was not this terrifying military power. It was Hansel and Gretel. It was plump ladies in blonde braids and dirndls. It was happy fairy tale land. Nobody took Germany that seriously well, Prussia. But other little German states were pretty much like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You know, um, this is how a lot of Europeans tended to regard the German states. So these wild people are showing up, and we'll call them bohemians because we don't know what else to call them. And the term rapidly surrounded all kinds of people who were considered riffraff in one way or another. Not just a bunch of artists who seemed to have no visible means of employment, but also ladies of the evening, also petty thieves and counterfeiters and scurrilous characters, disreputable folks and people with questionable morals. They were all sort of lumped in together as a bunch of wild others. And they are going to have their own place way over here on the left bank. And we'll go look at them sometimes. And of course, they, are know, they know that they're being looked at. And they're hoping that they'll be able to earn some money from it. So eventually, we're going to open up a cabaret so that we can be on stage and make them pay to gawk. 
Uh, those are the kinds of attitudes that were really being established first in France, but they rapidly spread. And to be a Bohemian became a kind of, of loose identity that mattered hugely from the 1880s well into the 40s. A lot of important advances in uh, culture in the United States around the turn of the century are from people who would have considered themselves Bohemian. We would probably not know as much about jazz and blues performers in the 20s if it weren't for white bohemians like Carl Van Vechten, who simply went to Harlem and then started to write about it, who would do things like say, oh, well, gosh, there's this really wonderful poet. Let me go to my friend Alfred A. Knopf and recommend him. And so let's see if we can get Langston Hughes published. That's part of what bohemian life did, because Carl Van Vechten was not a very respectable man. And he would like to go to dive bars and places where decent folk would never go. Um, so all of these sorts of things mean that there's this intense interest in this world which is deliberately and defiantly setting itself apart as we are not you. But that is exactly what gives them excuses to, as it were, sing. It's somehow it becomes the case that things that are especially emotional, that are especially lyrical, start to be located in that world. Because that's the world where things are unbuttoned. That's the world where things are too much somehow. That's the world that is not uptight. You can think of this in another way by thinking about what city people do to rural people, since at least Roman times, and what in Europe certainly northern people do to southern people. Anybody ever read um, A Room with a View? Forster, or seen the beautiful Merchant Ivory film? Well, that's about uptight English people in sunny, beautiful Italy, which they regard as primitive, right? The English attitude is, ah, these swarthy people, they are so earthy and simple, but yet they have something that we hyper-civilized people lack. We have lost something natural. We must get in contact with that by sort of being with them. That attitude fills, especially English and German books, where people go south in order to sort of taste the sort of savage life in this way. And if it's not going to be Italy, it's going to be Tahiti. Thank you, Mr. Gauguin. If it's not Tahiti, it's going to be the US. You know, there is, it's very much the kind of thing that we have been taught to call Orientalism. Orientalism is really complicated, though, because it doesn't just encapsulate what Europeans think about East Asia or South Asia or the Near East. It also encapsulates a weird kind of Occidentalism. If you look at various kinds of representations of the US in the 1890s, you would think that everybody lived in a teepee and ate raw meat all the time. And people like Mark Twain, people like Buffalo Bill made huge bank on this. They would go to Europe to be barbaric for cash. And so all of these kinds of things are sort of like feeding off one another over and over again. The authentic primitive place that we uh, bourgeois people look down on is nevertheless this source of life somehow. And we want access to it in this way. So it's probably not a surprise that the late style of Italian opera that we call Verismo particularly liked this world. 
if it's not the savage relationships of Sicilian peasants in Cavalleria Rusticana, then it's going to be clowns on stage in Pagliacci. Or it's going to be various Puccini characters who are almost always already theatrical. What does Tosca do for a living? What does her boyfriend do for a living? They, in a, you know, a few decades later, could have been sitting in Paris with Mimi and Rodolfo, in fact. And that's because these are the characters who seem in this world to be entitled to speak of feelings in these ways. Now, as to how they speak, that's where it gets a little more complicated. And now I want to turn to talking about technically how this happens. I'm going to be reviewing some things I've talked about in the past, but I hope the context will be uh, different enough to, to get us somewhere useful here. If we think about Italian opera before Puccini, we'll probably think about the sort of early bel canto composers of the 19th century, Donizetti and Bellini particularly, um, but we'll also be thinking about Verdi, who of course more than any other Italian opera composer really dominated the consciousness of the, of the 19th century. And we can think about the way that Verdi prefers to represent emotions occurring. Remember that one thing that Verdi likes and one thing that he preserves even to the end in Falstaff is he is faithful to the Italian taste for using dance rhythms and figurations as accompanimental patterns. This is exactly the kind of thing that made Germans sneer, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But the, the notion of the, the sort of presence of dance rhythms matters because it grounds bodies. You know, it's not an accident that on Dick Clark, the kids would say, it's got to be, you can dance to it. I give it a 10. Being able to dance to music causes you to listen to it differently than you listen to music you can't dance to. You're much more likely to be, in, to be in, in, entrained into it. You're much more likely to tap your foot or bob your head or wave your finger. And even if you're not doing it visibly, you're probably clicking along inside. That physical response grounds what's going on musically and makes us, it makes the piece feel human-sized because we can respond to it and engage with it on that somatic level. Let's take an example. Also from a fairly bohemian world, let's take an example from La Traviata. Now, Violetta Valerie is a perfect bohemian. She's a courtesan, after all. She's a courtesan, so she's a high-priced call girl who probably doesn't actually just take fees. She probably gets presents. That's probably how she makes a living. Um, in relationship to a project that I'm working on, on Cole Porter's Can Can, believe it or not, I recently had to go through and read Colette's Gigi which I had not read in a billion years. And I had forgotten how much of the text is about Gigi being educated in things like, here's how you tell a good stone from a bad stone. You know, those pearls, they've been dipped. They're not real. And there's a huge amount of mercantile information in there because clearly for this family, because the Alvarezes are professional courtesans, that's what they do. It's about making a living. And you have to be concerned about what gifts are being given by whom and in what context and who's going to know and how the hell much are they worth. And so here's Violetta Valerie, who is being tempted out of her lifestyle. But at the end of Act One, 
when she's really seriously been moved by Alfredo, she has a reaction formation in the classical Freudian sense and says, no, no, I must be free. Now, what she does then is launch herself into a fairly intense and fairly overdramatized uh, cabaletta. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of the beginning parts of Sempre Libera, where you hear the reflective section of the cavatina, followed by the, what am I saying? I reject it. And notice how easy it would be for all of us to conduct it, how easy it would be to keep the beat. This is Renee Fleming. And you know it's in three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Oh yes, there's Alfredo yelling outside the window. <laughs> and she's tempted again. She will, of course, successfully reject it only between the acts. She will succumb. And when we see her next, she will be living out in the country. The point that I really want to make with that, of course, is that really it's easy to feel the beat. It's very, very easy to fall into the swing of the rhythm, and it grounds us as listeners. That's an important question about what it takes to make a melody. A lot of times we are accustomed to think, well, a tune is really just, it's the horizontal dimension of music. It's a bunch of pitches strung together. And yeah, that's true, but they're actually usually pitches in a distinct rhythmic pattern. The great obsession of late 18th century theory, music theory, was, was writing melodies. And it turns out when you read the theoretical treatises, how to write a melody, they're talking about rhythm as much as they're talking about any pitch you could possibly find. Um, they're concerned with shape. If we had enough time, I would start talking about periodic structure and we'd be talking about Mozart for an hour uh, because that's where you can really hear it work most, most clearly. But that's part of what's happening here. The rhythm is what helps the melody become memorable, encapsulated, it sticks with us, we respond to it, and it feels human-sized. Now, Wagner, of course, was after something different. He was not interested in human beings. He was interested in mythological characters. Only really once in Meistersinger does he have human beings. And well, just let me remark that although some people think Meistersinger is a comedy, including Wagner, I just don't see it. It's just not funny. Um, but even there, he often has this tendency to try to mythologize. Now, mythologizing for Wagner takes two aspects of music and really focuses on them. The first, famously, is harmony. He likes to do things with harmony that are not instantaneous to follow, where you have a thing and you say, what just happened? For instance, you might take this chord progression from Parsifal, where you have this chord. Oh. 
again. Now, in the way that we are accustomed to hearing, those chords are extremely far apart and they don't seem to belong together. We're accustomed to... Yep. Um, but it's nothing like... That's very far spooky and mysterious. What has happened, in fact, is that the first chord and the second chord are related because every pitch in the first chord has gone a half step away and then come back together. And that's just spooky, magical, and freaky. So that's one thing Wagner likes. The other thing he likes, of course, is our favorite... one of my favorite, what the hell is that, chords. Because in fact, we don't know precisely what it is. We have several answers, and there's reasons to think that some of them may be true and some of them may be less true. But there are lots of possible ways to say what this is. So when you get chords like that, one of the things you have immediately done is you have made it almost impossible to walk steadily forward. If Verity will let you do this, in Wagner you're going, it's like you're in a Robert Wilson production. <laughs> and so you start to end up with no past tense or no future tense. You're in this weird present place all the time. Then what happens if you slow everything down so you couldn't find a beat even if you were looking for it with a flashlight? Then you're just floating. Like take an example from Act Two of Tristan, the love duet. Let's just listen to a minute of it and you'll notice it's not so easy to conduct anymore. we're just wallowing. And we're wallowing for very specific reasons, because there is a metaphysics and a psychology 
behind this that is different from Verdi's. The metaphysics is that of German idealist philosophy where there is the real world and then there is that mysterious noumenal world back there that you can only touch, thank you Arthur Schopenhauer, through music. So there's this kind of magic attempt to penetrate to the essence of the interior where everything sort of floats in this kind of luscious fragrant oneness. That's part of what's really going on metaphysically here. What's going on psychologically is it's heading towards a kind of free association. It's trying to do musically the sorts of things that you do when you're lying there almost asleep and your brain is just doing those random things and floating through sporadically with stuff. It's trying to get what it feels like inside. The idea that is rapidly becoming important in Europe is that, first of all, there is such a thing as an unconscious. The unconscious as a thing is not necessarily a human universal. Lots of people have no use for the concept whatsoever. In 19th century Europe, it became more and more important. Uh, that way of thinking about having an interior, having all these really complex things going on in the interior, having them show up in weird partial forms, all of this is really central to the period, as well as the idea that emotions aren't things that are quantifiable. Uh, you know, if you look at, 19th, at 18th century opera, they tend to think, well, there's sorrow, there is rage, there is despair, there is happiness, and there are little quanta of feelings. Well, these quanta start to break down in this period because the idea is that feelings are mushy. Feelings bleed into one another and smear and get overlapped. And now my music is going to represent that. So one way to think about this is that Verdi and Wagner, along with several French composers, constitute the materials Puccini has to work with. These are the things that he wants to take and make his own and find a new direction through. And he's really successful at that. What he does is he dumps the kind of number structure that we're used to, where numbers are really clearly defined. You'll notice how hard it is to excerpt arias from, for, from Puccini operas a lot of times. They don't work as well as just sort of grabbing a Verdi op, um, aria and boom, there you got it. It's more like they're scenes quite often. And you have to have the orchestra fill in for other people who were there, and you have to find ways of doing it. Um, if you think about La Boheme, what are the numbers that you think you might hear? There are about three. That's pretty much, yeah, you're going to hear Cagelida Manina. Um, you're going to hear Michelmano uh, um, uh, Mimi, and you're going to hear Musetta's Waltz. And we're kind of done. Because Verdi's, because Puccini's operas don't necessarily excerpt as well because of their structure. What's going on is one of the things that he took from Wagner is that the orchestra does a huge amount of work. The orchestra is always present. It's always commenting. It's always involved in multiple layers of the action in the story, and you have to pay attention to what it's doing, or you won't know what the characters are doing. My favorite example of this is something that happens in pretty much every Puccini opera I can think of. There will be a point where there is a tune, 
Won't be a long one. It'll be a phrase or two. That'll be about it. But it's a big deal, and he wants to make sure that you know it's a big deal because if it's a duet, they will be singing it in octaves, and the orchestra will be singing the tune along with them. When the orchestra sings the tune along with the singer, you know it matters. It's like a giant musical highlighter just ripped across the page. Now, that happens in earlier operas too, of course it does, but in Puccini it's an important way of distinguishing particularly important melodic moments. Because another thing he takes from Wagner is that melody is not a thing so much as a fluctuating quality. Um, I've actually tried to describe it using the extremely ugly term melodicity because I don't know what else to use. Sometimes something that seems like a melody is really not as melodic as it's about to be, depending on what the orchestra does. If you've ever listened to Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, the second movement is this beautiful theme and variations, but if you extract what seems like the tune and sing it by itself, it sounds like this. That's like the do run run run. Come on. So why do we love it? Why do we think this is ravishing? Because what happens is if the melody is on one pitch, but the orchestra changes, well, the melody's moved. It doesn't have to be that the melody has to do all the work itself. The orchestra can make it happen as well. And so to listen to Puccini well means to be alert to the relationship between the singer and the orchestra at all times. Another thing to mention here is that sometimes Puccini gets this from Wagner. Strauss does much more of it than Puccini does. Sometimes you aren't supposed to be able to hear the singer. Sometimes it is written so that, yeah, the singer is singing, but you can't hear him, her. Um, a great example of that is the end of Tristan and Isolde, where in the last pages of the score, Wagner writes things so that several times Isolde sings so low in her register while the orchestra's high that you lose her. You just, she's like, oh, whoa. And what's happening is a literal representation of what she's singing about. She's talking about being engulfed. She is drowning in some metaphysical soup and you hear it because she keeps going under over and over again. And so that is also an important consideration. When there is an effect and you're like, oh, I don't know about that, do consider the possibility it was planned for because these guys are really very canny about that sort of thing. So I think I should give you some examples of this. Let's actually listen to some of Kejeli de Manina. One thing you'll notice is that it's got a fairly loose construction. The first section, where he's first touching her hand and sort of talking to her for a minute, um, is in what I would think of as if I were doing my old-fashioned form diagrams. It's a kind of an ABA. He has a tune, he goes away from it for a middle section, and he comes back to it, and that finishes our first part. Then he's got that sort of arrogant peacock thing, where he's, I'm a poet. Uh, how do I live? I live. It's really kind of fatuous. He's kind of a and I'm trying to watch my language because it's a podcast too, but he's a jerk. There we are. 
I would find, I would prefer a more pungent word at this point. Um, but you know, he's showing off at that point. And you will start to hear little thematic bits recur, but they never recur in the form of a full melody that repeats. It's closer to a leitmotiv technique than anything else, even though they're not small enough to be leitmotivs in this way. When Mimi responds, she has a different structure. She has two basic statements. She'll say, they call me Mimi, and then she talks. Then she'll say it again, and that section is going to lead into the really poignant part about how I don't have anything, but at least I have April and the sun and things like that. And in each case, you'll notice this fluctuating qualities of melody, where sometimes the orchestra is taking the lead, sometimes the singer is taking the lead. What you will not be able to do, however, is count through it. You will not be able to do conducting patterns or clap along or do anything like that. Because at the same time that these are arias of a sort, they're also conversations. It is a kind of arioso all the way through in this way that touches on arias periodically. So let's listen for a bit. This is our B section. Go back to the beginning. Now our new section. New section, very important theme. This will come back and back. You may think, oh, we're actually in a meter, but not for long. The orchestra has it. Get ready. Now that's a cadence. We're really at a sort of point of articulation, but he's chosen the note that is least stable. So we're open. This is for the applause, right? Hey, bravo, bravo, bravo. Because Italian opera respects the audience. Mimi gets a different mood. Notice the opening gesture. It doesn't even sound like a beginning of anything. It sounds like she's halfway through a story. 
her orchestration is different. So many of her lines tend to sort of wilt a little bit towards the end. They tend to fall in this way because, of course, she's consumptive. She's already dying when we meet her. Sort of creepily, that's part of the attraction. You know, she's like a Kate Moss, one of those waif-thin girls kind of things. This is the second strain. We start it again. Now do be aware of all of these light sounds like the flutes and the bells and the chimes and the pizzicato strings. I'll come back to this in a minute. Oh, so here's where she's really, this is where her feelings are most important here. And notice the orchestra is singing with her. Um, that little very quick recitative tag on the end tells you something really important. And what it tells you is that even with things that are aria-like, Puccini does not want them to feel completely self-contained. Now he's gonna leave space for the applause because that's an important function of Italian opera. You have this dynamic relationship with the audience, right? It's not like Wagnerian opera where you're supposed to sit in reverent silence. One of my old teachers, once told me of seeing um, Parsifal at Bayreuth, and after it was over and everybody had been sitting in deadly Teutonic silence for six and a half hours, the gentleman next to him turned to him and said, das war ein Erlebnis. That was an experience. And you're supposed to have, you know, Bayreuth was like church, man. Bayreuth was the second largest pilgrimage site in Europe in the late 19th century after Lourdes. And so you're supposed to have that reverent sort of attitude towards it. That's not Italian opera. Italian opera is about engaging with the audience who's there. That's the whole point, for instance, of having a clack right? The clack were those paid professionals who would go to the opera and clap and yell at the right places because you've got to have people who are going to guide you and like let you know, well, when am I supposed to applaud, right? You don't want to be embarrassed, so you wait for the clack to be going, ah, bravi, bravi, and then you're like, oh, okay, we're, we're there now. And that's part of the experience. Um, so he'll leave you those spaces, but you notice the very way that Mimi ends that indicates that that's not a stopping point. That's actually, we're going to keep on going here. Now, one of the things that I've always liked 
particularly about my favorite Puccini operas. So this is my second favorite. My first is Fanciulla del West, which I earnestly beg the LA Opera to do again. It's been years. And it's a wonderful piece. And it's about California. How can you, how can you resist it? What he's especially good at is a kind of scenery. He's good at creating atmosphere and landscape, as it were. He's just brilliant at it. And most of La Boheme is landscape. If you think about scenes with, you know, carnivals and cookie sellers and hot dogs and all this kind of stuff, the point of that is not to advance the plot. That's actually like production numbers in a musical. The point is actually to sort of stage something beautiful and exciting that gives you some sort of flavor of a world. And within that world, these characters are placed. Now, I'd also say that really Rodolfo and Mimi are the only real characters in the opera. Everybody else is somewhat characterized but participates in the scenery more than anything else. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because I want to go back to the question of all those bells and tinkly sounds and flutes. We have those because Mimi is the good girl, right? Now, speaking bluntly, as a seamstress, she probably, her real life counterparts would not have been turning, a tr not, not been above turning a trick or two here and there. But that's not, the, that's not the Mimi we're presented with. We're presented with the innocent, sweet Mimi who doesn't go to church but prays all the time and so on and so on. The bad girl, the redhead, is Musetta. But her aria is quite interesting because we probably remember it as just a song, but it's not. It's actually a song that's stuck in the middle of lots of other stuff, in fact, so that you have to excise all the extraneous commentary to get it into concert form, as it were. Let's listen to a minute of it because it is an actual waltz, but again, it's a waltz you can't dance to for long because he's not going to let it continue in that way. So let's uh, cut to this. Of course, the text is increasingly weird and interesting in our times, because it's about, oh, you know, I see all those men looking at me when I walk down the street, and I'm really delighted by the way they stare at me. And I'm not so sure that would be a sentiment that would be as readily shared nowadays. But that's how she's being presented, right? She's, I don't know, I want the old-fashioned word a minx. <laughs> She's saucy. She's, she's a hussy. Uh, and that's part of what we're supposed to like about her, right? That she's just unrepentant. She's a Carmen in that way, except mercifully she doesn't die. Such a horrible death. Um, so let's listen to just a little of this, and you'll see how embedded it is in all of this material. Now that's a real accompanimental pattern. That's an actual dance pattern. Those kind of things. Legatemi alla seggiola, quella gente che dirà. the B section. There's the orchestra doing its thing again. 
canto scurrile mi muove la vita come to the opera eh, this month to see La Boheme, I would say if I could recommend one thing, just always be aware that the singers are in partnership with the orchestra, that they're actually all working together to move back and forth to create these luscious, glorious melodies that you can't actually have alone. You actually, they emerge out of the sort of auditory scenery that Puccini has provided for you, like they're sort of organically sort of a part of that musical landscape, which I think is a really good way of honoring the original title of, you know, scenes of bohemian life. It has that scenic quality. And that, I think, is sort of at the heart of the lyric impulses in La Boheme. And I thank you for your time. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.